The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. ever run in London, Mrs. Christie? Oh, I'd hardly say that. No, not by a long way. <laughs> Why has it been so phenomenally successful, then? Well, there again, I don't know. People like it, but who can say why? Do you ever go to see it now yourself? Oh, yes, frequently. At least about three or four times a year. How many years would you give the mousetrap yet? I wouldn't like to prophesy. <laughs> I've always said it's coming, coming off next year for years, but it never has, so now <laughs> mm, that's mystery writer par excellence agatha christie talking about her play the mousetrap the mousetrap is by far the longest running play in history with more than twenty-five thousand performances and counting she was being asked about it 50 years ago wondering how long it could continue well it has i saw it 25 years ago or so and people were joking about it then go see something else they said but I wanted to see it, because why not? It's kind of like going to see Big Ben or the Houses of Parliament, just as its author, Agatha Christie, is kind of a fixture as well. Sherlock Holmes, Harry Potter, Shakespeare, Dickens, Jack the Ripper, the Beatles, Agatha Christie. Enduring classics of that enduring island nation. 25,000 performances. It's a record, but that's no real surprise. This was a woman who wrote so many books with such great success and such continued success that the record books are practically hers. Her most successful book, and then there were none, has sold 100 million copies. That is a lot of product. 100 million. To put that in perspective, we've had one and a half million downloads of the History of Literature podcast, and we're giving this thing away for free. 100 million copies of one book sold. That's not counting all the libraries and schools and the multiple readers for each of those copies. And she wrote dozens and dozens of books. 66 mysteries, something like that. Two billion copies sold, third behind Shakespeare in the Bible, as her publishers like to say. I heard once that the Bible is the most stolen book of all time. Have you heard that? It's interesting. I guess you steal it and then learn that you should not have done that. And then what? What do you do then? I'm imagining a thief stealing the book, opening it up, reading Thou Shalt Not Steal, contemplating hell for a while, and then returning to the bookstore and delicately replacing the book back on the shelf. Whoops! <laughs> I, uh... I didn't really... Uh, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> oh, boy. Agatha Christie books must be stolen a lot, too, but they're stolen by gentlemen thieves, glamorous heiresses, lonely widows, colonels, and shy debutantes. All those people are there in the bookstore at once. They all have a reason to steal the book. 
It's a tremendous puzzle to figure out who the devil stole the damn thing. But luckily, here comes our detective, armed only with wit and guile and keen psychological insight and an insatiable curiosity. Agatha Christie is fun, and you can see her personality bursting out of that interview I played, her charm, her British self-deprecation. The interviewer did not ask her about the incident in her life that tormented her, the one blemish on the otherwise dainty doily, the crack in the perfect teacup of success and stardom. Her first marriage went poorly. She was despondent. Her car was found, and she herself was nowhere, gone, disappeared. The country went on a frenzied search, and she turned up later, nearly two weeks later, claiming amnesia. She lived a long time after that, and she wrote book after book, bestseller after bestseller, until she was essentially a one-woman industry, a household name all over the world. She had everything but peace of mind. The episode, The Disappearance, haunted her. It hovered over her. The woman who wrote about secrets and people desperate to keep them, and the great prying open of secrets that detectives like Hercule Poirot and Jane Marple were so good at. That woman, that author, that inventor of puzzles herself had a secret that the public wanted to pry open. She knew what it was like to have such a secret and to be exposed to those prying minds. We're not going to shy away from that today here on the History of Literature. We'll dig right in, and we have a wonderful guest to help us do it. Gillian Gill, author of Agatha Christie, The Woman and Her Mysteries, is here to talk about the appeal of Agatha's books, about Agatha the person, about what may have happened during that fateful fortnight, and what it all means. Agatha Christie, with biographer Gillian Gill, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you chose to join us. You could be reading Agatha Christie instead. Well, maybe it's time to take a break from that and celebrate her as a person. She is iconic. An Agatha Christie book, it seems that everyone gives them a try at one point or another. Or if not, they've seen the movies or the shows. There's a sort of quality to them. Well, now I'm jumping ahead. Let's wait for our expert, Gillian Gill, here to explain it for us. But first, let's hear some from some listeners. Oh, and we have some news this week. Some news from the old gray lady, the New York Times. All the news that's fit to print. Once our national paper of record here in America, and lately making some very questionable decisions. Some might say they're not handling the Trump years very well, but that's not our focus here at the History of Literature podcast. The New York Times here is better known for its book reviews, its finger on the pulse of culture, its ability to take a high-level view of literature, and indeed, the history of literature. You might say that the New York Times makes a podcast like this one unnecessary. Why listen to Jack Wilson? Lil Jack Wilson. <laughs> That's how they view me over there, right, at the Times building? Lil Jack. Cute Lil Jack. What does Lil Jack know? Why get your history of literature news from Lil Jack? 
when you can have the full weight and might of the august New York Times dropping such news right on your doorstep. Thousands of employees, the New York Times, writers and cultural critics and editors, and on and on and on. Well, let's check in on the New York Times and see how they're handling our subject, the history of literature. This is a correction they issued on January 24th, 2020. Quote, correction. In an earlier version of this article, the given name of the actress who introduced the couple was misspelled. She is Vaishnavi Sharma, not Vaishmavi. The given name of the wedding officiant was also misspelled. She is Gabra Zachman, not Dabra. Also, the author of Dracula was incorrect. He is Bram Stoker, not Jane Austen. End quote. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa, what? Whoa. Vaishnavi, not Vaishmavi. Fine. Gabra, not Dabra. Okay, okay. Mistakes happen. Fat finger, typo. A little mishearing. But Dracula, Jane Austen? What kind of a meltdown is that? What on earth? I just can't even process that one. It's like one of my... Favorite memories from a Shakespeare class I took, taught by the highly esteemed Shakespearean scholar, Professor David Bevington. At one point he said, well, I guess it's, it kind of reminds me of that novel by Dickens. Oh, what, what's the title? What's the book I'm thinking of? And immediately, all of these hands shot up. Nobody had a clue what was going on in Shakespeare. We were all too intimidated. We didn't want to make some kind of gaffe. This guy knew everything about Shakespeare. He could cite the lines of any play on command. If you made a statement, he could easily point out why it was wrong, where the exceptions were, and quote Shakespeare right at you to do it. He wasn't a jerk about it. He was unfailingly polite, but he could do it, and he did do it, and so everyone was terrified. But we needed a participation grade, so we did our best, and here we go. A Dickens title he's trying to recall. Time to chalk up a few points. Hands shot up. I think Mike Palindrome was in there with me. He probably raised both his hands. And the professor started calling on people. David Copperfield? Someone said, no, no, that's not it, said the professor. Someone else. Great expectations? No, no. A Tale of Two Cities? And on we went. Finally... One kid was called on and said, Middlemarch? Which all good listeners will know was well covered in our episode 184, George Eliot. Her greatest work, the greatest novel by perhaps the greatest of all 19th century novelists, writing in English anyway, Middlemarch. We were looking for Dickens and this guy gave us Middlemarch. There were a few gasps, a few snickers. Mike Palindrome looked at me. His jaw dropped, eyes wide, horrified. What a gaff, poor soul. And the beautiful Professor Bevington just said, No, no, it was Dickens. <laughs> no, no, New York Times. It was Stoker. So, all that is a little plug for our humble little podcast, doing our best to keep you informed. Our recent atrocity regarding William Blake and 
Charles Darwin, notwithstanding. Sweep that one under the rug. We get things wrong, too. I can fairly say that we will not tell you that Jane Austen wrote Dracula. When would she have the time? She was, of course, too busy writing the Odyssey and the screenplay for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. A comment to episode 83, overrated, came in from listener Michelle. Jack, I am so grateful to have found your podcast. I've been trying to jump on the podcast bandwagon and failed numerous times over the, these past three years. Past years, I guess she says. <laughs> I was laughing at the jumping on the podcast bandwagon. I hope uh, you didn't injure yourself. Until I found this one. It finally hit me that I should search for a podcast that talks about something I already really care about and want to learn about in more depth and context. Literature! That might sound silly to admit, but I've tried all kinds of podcasts to learn about new and unfamiliar things, technology, history, etc., and it's never much stuck as a routine for me. Listening to yours has become a routine, and it's been such a pleasure. I digress. Can I just say what a relief it was to hear you and Michael agree that The Last of the Mohicans, Don Quixote, and Dave Eggers were on the list of material I did not have to cover? Also, I thought it was hilarious that this was even a podcast someone would think to put together. I certainly appreciated it, though, and I think you did a great job of looking out for your community. I might add, though, that I'm what you'd call a millennial, and I still read hardcovered books and just finished The Sound and the Fury last year, my third Faulkner book to date. I wanted to ask a couple of questions. The first one she asks is, what is your opinion of Truman Capote? comment continues on a little bit. Let me stop there. Truman Capote. I like some of his work, and much of it leaves me a little cold. There's something to unlock there, I think. I think when Capote dove deep, what he when he really tried, really cared, he brought something out of himself that was surprisingly good, and much of the time he sort of danced around his own talent. It was as if he didn't always want to go quite so deep. That's how he seems to me. Maybe I should do a show on this to figure it out. The comment continues. Thank you so much for your time, even if you don't get a chance to respond to this comment. I'm happy just to have an outlet through which to ask these burning questions. Sincerely, Michelle. Well, Michelle, thank you for the beautiful comment and for the burning questions. We're very glad to have you on board as a listener. All millennials are welcome. We're turning things over to you guys soon enough. And it's good to know that your generation is preparing by reading your way through Faulkner and Capote and Hemingway and is skipping the stuff that can be skipped because you're going to be busy saving the planet. Next up, an email from Luca. Subject, words of gratitude and ideas for future episode. Hi there, my name is Luca and I am an Austrian college student, English major here too living in Virginia. I recently discovered the history of literature, and it is a real treasure. I now listen to it pretty much everywhere, on a run-slash-walk in the Austrian Alps, folding laundry and doing dishes for me and my roommates, or, once homework is out of the way, lying comfortably in bed before going to sleep. You guys are so funny and engaging, and in a way, hot. Hot? No, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I was... I was <laughs> I was wondering why I didn't notice that part before. Uh, I might <laughs> doesn't say hot. You guys are so funny and engaging, and in a way, 
H-O-L feels like going to class, but without the pressure, yet so enriching. H-O-L here is history of literature, of course. I really thank you all for getting putting this podcast together. One idea for a future episode I think would be compelling. Could y'all share your thoughts on the intersection of identity politics and literature, given the rise and proliferation of such fields as race studies, feminist and queer theory, the most common methodologies in class settings, and my main areas of interest? I often wonder what arguments can be made for literature being explicitly or implicitly political, or whether theories of this sort make a study or leisurely enjoyment of literature may be less literary, whatever the latter means. I am not so sure. I hope you get where I am going with this. I would love to hear your opinions on it. Again, thank you for all your efforts, dedication, and passion. Greeting from unusually dry and snow-free Austria. Oh, wow. Luca, out there in Austria. How wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. We should definitely do an episode on reading literature today in a university setting. Or maybe not. Maybe we need to avoid that subject. I'm not sure. Maybe with the right guest I could, but I I don't know. I spent some time in academia myself, sort of, and I left that world behind, sort of. And I have a lot of respect for it, a lot of admiration. I'm not trying to judge. But when I think about tackling those subjects you mentioned, it makes me want to go to my shelf, pull down some Edith Wharton, and collapse on the divan. An open book and an open mind and an open heart, and an open soul, and talking to interesting readers and writers, and reading the books like a novice and not a professional. Maybe that's what I've come to in life, and maybe that's just fine. Thank you for your email, Luca. I will now have the Austrian Alps on my mental picture of people and places who are enjoying the podcast around the world. Let's take a quick break and come back with special guest Jillian Gill. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me once again for a repeat performance on the History of Literature podcast is Jillian Gill, who joined us last time for a discussion of her new book, Virginia Woolf and the Women Who Shaped Her World. Jillian has written other biographies as well, and she's here today to discuss the subject of one of those books, the incomparable mystery writer 
Agatha Christie. Jillian Gill, welcome back to the History of Literature. It's my pleasure to be with you, Jack. Okay, so I'm not sure we need to spend too much time telling our listeners who Agatha Christie is, but if we assume we have a a few Martians in our audience, uh, what do we say about Agatha Christie? How do we describe her in two or three sentences? Do we start with the number of books she's sold, and which is over two billion as of 2016, or that she's been translated into over 103 languages? Or um, one of the interesting things to me, you know, I started working on Christie in the late 80s, mm. 1980s, mm-hmm. um, and so I've sort of been looking at the way, uh, as it were, her fame has continued, and it does continue. Right. Recently, my husband and I, because we're kind of into this this kind of detective. English detective fiction genre on television have found a new series. So there was the marvelous Poirot series mm-hmm. um, with David Suchet. There was the equally marvelous, well, I think there were two sets of Marple. But now there's another whole group of television spectaculars, I must say, using uh, in the one that I remember first seeing, uh, Glenn Close appears. Mm. Uh, so they've introduced Hollywood uh, eminences to play parts. And then, of course, there's the actual movies, the sort of large-scale movies. Um, it seems to be that everybody continues to find her plots fascinating, her characters fascinating, mm. and are eager to put a new spin on them. And one thing I did notice in the most recent presentation of And Then There Were None, uh, that actually changed the ending of the book in mm. the new TV series. So what do you think is behind this enduring popularity and uh, fascination and, and appeal of her books? Is it that she's such a good puzzle maker or her prose stylings? Or I think we have to do two things here. I mean, here we are on a History of Literature podcast. So in a way... If you just concentrate on the books, which is what I did in my own 1990 book, Agatha Christie, The Woman and Her Mystery, if we concentrate on the book as opposed to um, the fictionalization in television form or movie form, Mm -hmm. um, what we have is indeed a a master of plot, Mm. um, an extraordinary master of plot. And her plots have been, as it were, just as she took uh, plots from previous authors like the Leavenworth case and the mystery of the, uh, I mean, the Poe books, the Gaston LaRue books, um, she'd read all of those and she uses those. So you can see detective fiction as an accretive business with a writers um, reading each other, using bits of each other and then moving on. Well, Christie moved on in a big way and her books, the plots of her books have been extensively, as it were, cannibalized by later writers. But what strikes me is the simplicity, the apparent simplicity of the prose, mm-hmm. which makes it very easy to translate. Right. I think you said that she'd been translated into 123 languages. Well, she's easier to translate than most other English writers of her generation. Mm-hmm. It does not use very esoteric vocabulary. And at the same time, one of her great skills is that she relies so much on dialogue. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Dialogue is a key element in her presentation. And then there's the fact that she presents actually a, a fictional world that appears to be 
marvelously realistic and yet which can be carried into other cultures in interesting ways because in many ways it is based on familial relationships the relationship between husband and wife notably between an older person it could be an actual parent or a step parent with uh, children uh, children among themselves and between lovers Mm. Um, these are eternal things and the fact that they're in a rather apparently stable and conventional setting makes them translatable into other conventional and traditional settings. And the third thing I would say, an intensely religious person in her personal life, Mm. deep spiritual communion. I mean, reading Thomas Akempis from her bedside book at night. Mm -hmm. Not a church-going person in a way, but someone who believes absolutely that there is a God, that there is justice, and that God knows the human heart as no human can know another human's heart. Mm. So that deep religious framework, which enables her to set up a system whereby in a very conventional culture, for reasons that people all over the world can understand, Mm. jealousy, lust, greed, those basic motivations um, are expressed in an apparently law-abiding situation and where through the agency of the detective, notably Miss Marple and Erti Brawl, the, the, the sinful person, I think that's a good word, the sinful person is brought to a kind of justice. Right. And that justice doesn't usually mean going to law. There aren't many law courts. In, I mean, there was a, a, a whole proceeding before a law court in her first book, and this was this was eliminated. And after that, she never does that. Dorothy Sayers does that. But um, Agatha Christie says, basically, Elkid Brown has found out mm-hmm. what happened, or Miss Marple has found out what happened, and is the representative, though she never says this, she doesn't lay her theology out. It's implied in the text. He or she, the great detective, will find the truth and uh, reveal it to the society and bring the the um, the perpetrator to a kind of eternal justice. Yeah, that the truth, in a sense, the truth and the announcement of the truth is as far as we go in terms of justice. That's justice enough. Yes, I mean, often the person then uh, commits suicide or is in some ways um, kills the person. Right. You know, in one of the books, you have this this extraordinary um, child murderer. And the child murderer is um, killed by her aunt who discovers what the child has done Mm -hmm. and decides to commit a a double murder-suicide. So she uh, engineers ways in which the perpetrator does die, but not, as it were. uh, And and there are definitely many stories where the people are, you know, dragged off to prison, as it were. But she doesn't follow them there in a way, the way that other... Uh, it's not a police procedural at all. Right. And she's not that interested in law courts and things like that. Yeah. The climax of these books is not the the conviction in a court of law, but the moment when the detective reveals that all the pieces have been put together and sort of yes. points his or her finger at the, the guilty party. Yeah. Hmm. And this idea that that could be possible is immensely appealing. Yeah. 
I would add another thing to her appeal, and this is something I'm, I've seen uh, close at hand with a, a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old I have, which is they're sort of perfect books for, you know, someone who's 10, 11, 12, where the, the murder is exciting enough, but it's not too gory or, or shocking. Yeah. And it's so yeah. readable. The prose is so accessible. And the yeah. experience I had, my son, my older son is very smart and he's very cynical and he's all wised up the way that kids these days are. And he was reading Agatha mm -hmm. Christie and, and he was enjoying it, but he kept saying, this is the first time he had read Agatha, Agatha Christie. He was enjoying it, but he was, throughout the reading, he was saying, it's too obvious. I know exactly who the murderer is. It's so obvious. It's so easy to guess. Mm -hmm. And I just waited and waited and waited. And then finally, I heard him, you know, exclaim out loud, like, no way. <laughs> and uh, of course, he was completely fooled. And then he immediately went out and read, you know, another half a dozen or so Agatha Christie books. Okay. And it was kind of, it, it kind of made me smile to think that even here in, you know, I guess that was in 2018 right. or 2019, that right. she still has that capacity for just kind of entertaining and delighting people who are trying to figure it out. But even though she's had many novels herself and many imitators, there's still this capacity for surprise. She's still capable of uh, trick, you know, fooling the reader until the very end. Right. And one of her... Uh, I mean, she, she, she wrote this, I think, in her autobiography, describing her very first book, The Mystery of Styles. And she says, I had this idea in my head about um, a murder of an elderly woman um, who was recently married, a much younger man. And this elderly woman has um, a whole bunch of uh, stepchildren who are financially reliant upon her. Now, all these people have a reason to murder her, but the husband has the best reason of all because he's likely to get a huge amount of the loot. And so the husband, even in normal life, the husband is very often the first suspect. So you have to have a, a plot, she says, where the husband is the obvious suspect. And then it proves out that he couldn't possibly have done it. He has the absolute impeccable alibi. And then in the end of the book, it turns out that after all, he did do it. And the whole alibi thing was a way of um, giving him complete um, uh, indemnity, legal mm -hmm. indemnity. Um, mm -hmm. And it's all extremely clever. And all of the clues are there in the text. This is a thing that right. I love. The, the use of textual clues so you know that Agatha Christie is famous for her clues. And boy, in the mysterious affair at Styles, her first book, you know, she's a beginning author, right? So she throws in 64,000 clues, basically. <laughs> and, twist, uh, you know, she, 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 she's going to get much simpler and more elegant in terms as she goes along. But here she is. She just throws it all in. So all of these materials, you know, one could call Sherlockian clues, you know, um, the, 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 uh, the, the crushed coffee cup, the dirt on the floor, all the kinds of things that Sherlock was so good at. Well, they're all there. Right. In the end, what it comes down to are what I call textual clues. And interestingly, textual clues are something that can be re reproduced on a page and which the average reader can follow if they're clever. 
Mm. So of course, and never ever as, as Chrissy herself, um, she will always um, attempt to um, trick you, and does in almost uh, most of the cases, I would say. But um, nonetheless, they are there. And when I come back to the dialogue, you know, you have the dialogue, which is way that the book is carried um, for much of it. So you have people saying things which they really do say, as it were, in the book, and which are revealing, and they're also profoundly deceptive. Mm. And so the way she creates those dialogues to both speak truth and conceal truth, and it's all there on the page for you to read. And at the end you say, oh boy, she laid it all out for me. I can go back and track all those clues. I can see how it works. And still, it was all in front of me. And I didn't get it. It's very satisfying for people who, like Christy herself, love crossword puzzles right. and all kinds of logical puzzles. So and yet, when, as I say, it's within a... Yes, go on. When you say something is a textual clue, you mean like a gesture or a line of dialogue that no, uh, reveals... No, I mean oh. literally a document. I mean, one of the... Less known of her books is called Cards on the Table, and it's one of my favorites of her books, actually, because I am a bridge, a very bad bridge player. So it involves two tables of bridge. One set of people are essentially known murderers, and four are four detectives. Okay, and they're each sitting in this playing the card game. And the way that Hercule Poirot discovers who, and, and the, the owner of the, the person who has invited these, this octuplet to um, his uh, extraordinary, luxurious London pad, um, is murdered during the bridge game. So there's four people, two on each table, and at some point, one of them gets up and stabs to death the person uh, who's invited them. So this is the crime. Who done it? And as I say, we have four murderers and we have four um, detectives. Now, the key clue are the bridge scores. And these are reproduced in the book. Uh, You see the bridge scores. And you can see if you're, you know, obviously you have to be a bridge player. um, And this is probably why most, you know, it's not the most popular of the books. It's the most perfect example of the clues. That it's by analyzing the bridge scores, which are placed on the page on every copy of the book, right? If you are good at bridge, you can see. And then, you know, Hercule Poirot interviews all of the players and asks them about the play of the hands, etc. But basically, it is a perfect textual clue. Um, In the first book, um, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, the two key clues are the little tiny pieces of paper. Uh, One is on a blotting paper. It says possessed it's multiple spellings of possessed and then in the in the grate there is a tiny fragment of the burnt which has double l and so this is will and testament okay Mm. so i am possessed you know so these are little they're, they're words on a page we can see them we can do what we can with them as what i call actively detecting readers and we can, and then finally, of course, there is the clue that we don't know exists. It is a letter which is stat- sitting in plain view on the mantelpiece in the form of what they call spills. This was pieces of paper torn up 
to lights for cars and things pipes. And this comes directly out of the great detective fiction. This is Edgar Allan Poe, you know, hiding the, the purloined uh, letter. The letter is hidden in plain view. Right. And it's there, right on. So, you know, she's she's um, using the, the past. She's using textual clues, which she can place on the page. She's using all of these methods. But in all of them, she's remarkably, I would say, honest. Mm-hmm. It is there. Right. She um, doesn't want to cheat the reader or make the reader feel like, well, you just took a big twist at the end, but yeah, anybody could do that. Yeah. You were just pulling the rug out from under your own story, and instead she wants to pave the way for it so it doesn't feel like a, a big trick. And in a, of course, it's all trickery because, you know, one of the, the most important things she does is to hide Poirot, as it were, behind someone like Hastings, mm-hmm. notably Hastings. She gets rid of Hastings fairly soon because he's such a boring person. She sends him off to South America with an exotic dancer or something. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, um, Hastings, is, he's basically the, the consciousness through whom we see things. Uh, he's the person who invites Poirot to take on the case. He's the person to whom Poirot sort of explains things. But basically, Hastings is there to, to have all the wrong ideas all the wrong conclusions. So he's a, a shield um, between us and the consciousness, as it were, of Poirot. Mm. And she uses um, things like that all the time. So even when we feel that we know exactly what's happening, in fact, we've only got half of it. But, you know, she does use some of the um, traditional, but, you know, every now and again, she goes to Somerset House and turns up records, you know, and this gets more and more true as Poirot gets to be more, as it were, successful in his job and has, you know, this lemon and um, his butler, etc. I mean, he's helped out. And of course, he has his people in the um, in uh, Scotland Yard. So then he does really, you know, he does things that the reader can't do. That's to say, go to Somerset House, which is where all the the birth ma- uh, marriages and deaths records of Britain um, were, or, and I think still are housed. And he could look up, oh, yes, there were twins. She's terribly big on twins. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the reader can't do. But on the whole, it's there for you, and you can uh, get good at it. I got very good at it, I have to say. <laughs> I got very good at uh, doing her mysteries. After reading, you know, there's a lot of them. Right. Lot, and, yeah. uh, after a while, I, I was able to do it. But, um, you know, if you just read four or five, you, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and move from the books to her as a person. And I have to say, she's one of those people who it's, you know, are, I, I feel like the the popular conception of her, the image that people might have in their mind if they close their eyes, is uh, her sort of at the tail end of a long and successful, successful career, someone with white hair. You know, there's people who live like that in our minds, like George Washington or someone who, it's hard to imagine Mm -hmm. them as a young person. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that that I found so exciting about your book is to see her as a girl and as a young woman. I think there's, with the exception of the notorious disappearance, I think uh, most people probably think of her as someone in in her 50s or 60s. Um, Right. But So let's save the... Uh, disappearance for now, and let's just focus on her as a girl and young woman. Uh, what kind of, where did she grow up and what kind of childhood did she have? She grew up in 
um, a seaside resort in Britain called Torquay. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of like a, a mini um, Mediterranean, you know, the mid- midi Mediterranean. Let's say it had palm trees and it was, as I say, on the seacoast and it was very hilly. And her parents, when she was a, a small child, um, lived a very affluent life. I mean, they were running out of money, but um, they still lived in a sort of transatlantic uh, affluent um, social register. I mean, her father, Frederick Miller, um, was on the social register in the United States. He was American. He'd spent most of his life in Britain, mm. and he lived entirely on his income. But when Agatha was about eight, he, her father died unexpectedly, and it turned out that he had basically run through all the money mm. that he'd inherited from his industrialist father. And there was very, very little left. And so Agatha was the youngest of three children um, and significantly younger than the other two. They were in their teenage years when she was growing up. Mm. And Madge, her sister, married a very wealthy man when Agatha was um, a small girl. So she had the, the trappings of upper middle classness but not the resources. Mm. But she lived in an upper-class world. And the home she inherited was a gradually crumbling, but still gracious and lovely um, place. It was called Ashfield. And she was passionately devoted to it. And she was not sent... This is a very key part of it. Um, She was considered as a child. As I say, she had two older um, siblings, a boy and a girl. The girl was... Very brilliant, very dominant, very smart, very energetic, absolutely a stunner in sort of every way. Um, The brother was, on the contrary, a charming renegade of the type that Agatha will include in so many of her mysteries. Mm. A no good who could never, who got kicked out of, I think it was Harrow. I mean, that's a school in England, right? Um, (laughs) Went into the colonial, it was a total no good. And then there was Agatha on the bottom. And she was considered to be slow. This Mm. is the year. And her mother decided that such a shy, um, uncommunicative, slow child should not go to school. Ah. And so she was educated entirely at home. And basically her education was haphazard and largely self-directed. And that suited her very well in many ways. It also gave her a great sense of interiority when she becomes a famous author um, and marries um, Max Malawan and enters the sort of intelligentsia of Britain. Ah. She didn't have any of that. She didn't didn't even, I mean, her sister could have gone to Girton, but just, you know, her parents decided they didn't want it to be a blue stocking. Well, Agatha couldn't possibly have gone to Cambridge because she didn't even have, you know, the equivalent of, right. of an SAT, you know, nothing. But in that environment um, with her mother, with whom she developed this absolutely symbiotic relationship, um, she was extraordinarily happy hmm. and lived in what she regarded as an Eden. Right. So sometimes when children are in a situation like that and they end up becoming famous authors, we hear that they discovered works of of philosophy or history in their parents' library. Was she discovering mysteries and, and thrillers and crime fiction? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, she read 
in the course, you know, she didn't get married until she, her first marriage, I think she's 26 or 27 or even 28, something like that. I mean, she has a long period of being free and independent and unmarried. Mm. She has a string of uh, men who want to marry her. She's very, very uh, attractive to men and extremely attracted two men yeah. um i thought it was a it was a hot chick i mean yeah. she really was you described um, her as beautiful and magnetic and and very shy but also just there's something about her that people found very appealing she incorporated the idea of beauty of her time mm. um i mean she was bosomy she was tall she was slender at this point she had long long golden hair she was looked like something out of Tennyson, hmm. um, Idols of the King, you know. But, uh, I mean, it's hard. There were very few good pictures taken of her at that time. And so it's hard for us to see it. But that's how she was. But all the while, she's reading. And at different points in her life, she it explores different. But the family was wild about um, detective fiction. Hmm. But it was also wild. I mean, Henry Jones was um, a visitor in the family. I, I said that her father was... Uh, an American expatriate. Well, Henry James came through for dinner and things like that. Yeah. So she read Henry James. She read all of Dickens. She read Thackeray. She read everything. Right. And as she gets older, at some point, her mother decides that, you know, she has got far too um, romantic an idea about uh, marriage. Her mother urges her to read Zola and Balzac <laughs> and, you know, play. and, you know, then, she says, I was astonished to read this actually recently. D.H. Lawrence. Oh, she read D.H. Lawrence. Right. She really liked D.H. Lawrence. So she was reading while, but in a way, this is the very interesting. I think, you know, if Agatha had gone to Somerville or Girton, she would probably have read math. Yeah. Right. She had a really good scientific mathematical brain. Yeah. Um, and that and eventually... was also coming. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, um, I didn't mean to interrupt that you were going to say that was going to come in handy at some point. Yeah, well, you know, that logical, yeah. um, uh, mathematical, precise frame, a type of mind, as opposed to a purely just literary type of mind, right. um, would become very, very useful to her um, yeah. when she does murder mysteries. And plotting them out. And she also got a job for a while as a chemist. Well, she was... Yeah, she was a dispenser. That's a to dispenser. say she worked under, this is in the First World War and also in the Second World War. I mean, the woman was amazing, you know, what yeah. she did in the Second World War. She wrote 10 books. Well, she actually wrote 12. She published 10 books in uh, between 1939 and 1945 while working two and a half days as a dispensing chemist. So that's to say she would make up prescriptions. Actually, yeah. She made up prescriptions. Um, also in the First World War, she worked as a nurse. And that gave her a nice, uh, that gave her a nice knowledge of poisons. That, that helped her to do, uh, cover the poison. Yes. Yeah. It did. Yes. So yes. when did she start writing and why? What was behind her decision? Was she someone who was just always scribbling down stories or was it more of a, uh, a desire to make money or what led to her starting to write these books? I think you, you hit on the two things. Uh -huh. um, my, my feeling is that in Agatha was a very, I mean, this is, Agatha Christie is this 
set of opposites. Someone who is, she was a really good businesswoman in her day. As soon as she became an author, as it were, after the first contract, um, which was intensely against her interests, she, she learned a lesson then that never was going to happen to her again. So there's a dreamy fantasy side to her. There's this extreme business side to her. I have a feeling that Agatha as a little girl became her mother's champion, as it were. Um, and on some level, she decided that she was going to make back the money that her father had lost. Mm. I mean, I can't prove that. But yeah. that's what exactly she did. That is exactly what she did. Wasn't she uh, trying to save the house? Yes, and tried to save the house. Yeah. Tried to save Ashfield. Tried to get her mother. So um, at the same time, she's totally unpractical because she marries a man who has no money. She marries Archibald Christie, Archie Christie, who has no money. Uh, I mean, he has 80 pounds a year. She has 100 pounds a year, which was actually not bad for many, for most people in Britain at the time. But for people in the upper middle class like themselves, this was not money. So with her writing, she's, she's writing poetry. She's writing stories. She's admitting them. She's getting a few published. She attracts the attention of a rather well-known, um, I mean, today we don't know, Eden Philpott, who was well-known in his day as a writer. And he really encourages her. So she's writing. And then during the First World War, her husband, Archie Christie, they've had one of those, you know, madcap weddings, you know, when um, they have two nights before he goes off, you know, to the front as a pilot in the um, Royal Flying Corps. And she's working in a dispensary. She's helping looking after her mother and her aging grandmother. But still, she has time on her hands. And Back in the back of her mind is um, this moment when she was a girl, when her sister, who was a successful writer, had become a successful writer, had said to Agatha, had said, I think I might be able to write a mystery like that. And Madge, that's her sister, says, I bet you can't do it. Mm. And um, I think Agatha <laughs> is trying to rival her sister. She's trying to of course, she has the talent. That's the thing. I mean, she knows on some level she can do what Gaston Leroux or um, Anna Catherine Green have done. Yeah. She feels it in herself. She doesn't say it, but she knows it. Well, she says it to one person. She says it to her mother. So famously, she has a, a vacation. She goes off to, I think, Devon, walks the countryside, speaking the dialogue, in, and then writing it feverishly at night. And then she sends it off, and it doesn't, Nothing happens very much for quite a while, but gradually she keeps writing. Now, one of the contradictions in Agatha Christie is that she is always saying how much she hates writing mysteries and how much of a pain it is. And it's such a stress and she doesn't know why she's doing it. But of course, she does it right up to the last years of, yeah. her, of her life. <laughs> I mean... When she knew perfectly well that the British taxman, basically, or the American taxman, was going to take 99 cents of every dollar of, that she earned. So, you know, of course, she needed to write. She wanted to be a writer. She wanted to earn money. And she found a way of doing it. She found in the mysteries that she had read, she found the perfect um, alliance between her talent um, and the market. So there's money and there was a satisfaction of her creative fantasy world. And she kept at it through it all, through the, work, through the birth of her child. She kept writing. 
nothing basically got in her way while all the time she's saying oh i like nothing nothing better than to do absolutely nothing and you know uh, <laughs> idle time is the best time and i mean this is all you know and then she's a, we, we a factory of mysteries yes 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 but she keeps um she keeps turning it out and she keeps turning it out until in 1926 which we're coming to yes. the great year of the disappearance as it were yep he publishes The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which was at first just a sort of succès de scandale. You know, it was so controversial, yeah. but very. it also got a, a, a substantial um, uh, readership. And she was, in 1926, she had two short stories. Through the, she, she got about six books out, I think, of short stories and actual novels. Okay, so let's get to this. Let's get to this. Let's take a quick break and come back with the story of Agatha Christie's disappearance. Okay. So we are now in 1926. Agatha Christie has published six books. She's become well-known. Her book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, was a huge success. And then she disappears. What happened to her in those 10 or so days? First of all, perhaps that I should say, no one knows. Yeah. She never told anyone. Right. Or if she told them, those people that she told didn't really say. Yeah. So what was going on in her personal life before she disappeared? Well, that's what, to me, is the key. Because, of course, in my book, I also, every book, every biography has to have an account of the disappearance, yeah, a right? a theory or um, a description of the theories that are yes, out there. Yeah, yes, exactly. So I have mine, and I actually have a revised one, mm. which came upon me in the last two days, and which I lay on your uh, listeners. Um, okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, okay, 1926, she has moved to the sort of the, the suburbs of London. Her husband is increasingly involved in golf and his life in the city. He goes to the city every, and, you know, their, their marriage is becoming less and less um, united, shall we say. They're both they're living more and more separate lives. Mm -hmm. So her mother dies. Mm. Now, I said that Agatha Christie was passionately fond of her mother, but I think it's, it's more important than this because one of the keys to Agatha Christie is she believed that you could not understand people, that no one knew what she was thinking and she didn't know what anyone else was thinking. Mm. But there was an exception in her life. She believed that her mother could, in a certain way, read her mind. Mm. And this was immensely, immensely comforting to her. Yeah. It, her mother was home. It's not just that her mother lived in the actual physical structure of the home, but her mother was home. Her mother was someone to whom she never needed to explain anything. Her mother loved her, adored her, believed she could do anything in the world, was the main, mainstay of her emotional life. And her mother died. Yeah. And Agatha was bereft and the physical the psychological stress was exacerbated when she insisted on going down to Ashfield uh, 
family home and clearing out the place for either rental or sale um, of all the accumulated um, mm. uh, possessions. And she went into a profound, profound depression. And, and during this time, her I husband, just wanted to tell the listeners she's about 35 or 36 at this point. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, she's in her middle 30s, and in the previous years, she had gained weight. She was no longer a beautiful long-haired self. She had cut her hair. She was um, an ordinary, middle-aged, slightly overweight woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, in her, in her looks. So she is expecting her husband down on the, on the seventh birthday of their child, their, their only child, Rosalind. And she's expecting him to come down and in some sense, rescue her. You know, he's going to ride in. She's always seen him as this romantic figure. Mm-hmm. Um, the epitome of the strong, silent male, the British version of that. <laughs> yeah. Silent and unknowable and fascinating and mysterious, right? Yeah. She expects him to come home, come to her and take her away and in some way of his own replace the emotional intimacy. And of course, the exact opposite happens. He comes down on the child's birthday, announces to her that he has fallen in love with another woman, 25 young, a very beautiful 25 to 26 year old secretary whom he's been seeing in London. And he intends to divorce Agatha and he intends to marry this woman, Nancy Neal. And Agatha is, well, bouleversé, as they say in French, overwhelmed taken yeah. completely in shock. I mean, this is, this is a little bit extraordinary that she had not guessed. She really mm-hmm. had not guessed. Mm-hmm. And she refuses on religious grounds and on, because of the extremely strong rapport between her child and her husband, a rapport that she does not share and really regrets not sharing. She refuses to divorce. And Archie is absolutely furious. And they go through periods of, of reconciliation, et cetera, et cetera. But it becomes clear that there is no way of getting past this. She becomes more and more sad, more and more depressed, can't eat, can't sleep, is in the most wretched state of mind. And at this point, she disappears. Hmm. Her car is found at the bottom of a hill on the South Downs uh, near Newland Corner. Um, not far from her home, but even closer to the house where she knew her husband was spending the weekend with his friends and with this woman, Nancy Neal. So the placing of the of the car, it's rolled down the hill. It contains her overnight case. It contains her fur coat, but there's no Agatha. So the assumption is that um, by the police, that she has wandered off and there is this massive search for 10 days. The whole area around that is searched by dogs, by volunteers. Uh, Dorothy Sayers and her, uh, her husband were two of the people who literally, oh. you know, went crashing the gorse, you <laughs> know, to know find, find yeah. the body. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was huge. And a lot of rather, um, by British standards, a, a large number of uh, police time um, was spent and a lot of taxpayer money was expended on trying to find this woman who turns up eventually to have spent the time in a very ritzy Harrogate hotel. Harrogate is in Yorkshire, uh, where she had been doing crosswords and uh, um, playing bridge and <laughs> um, dancing and singing and leading a totally normal life. 
And she was finally recognized because the press, the British press, went completely ape. And her case was splashed all over, particularly the Daily Mail, which is um, a, a sort of notorious scandal sheet. Anyway, she was the, the co-celebre of the day. And then when she was found, of course, um, the reaction was absolutely bitter and vituperative. And she was subjected to the most awful slanders. And the most, most people felt that she had um, staged the whole thing right. as a kind of revenge on her husband, who for 10 days was being sort of discovered, first of all, as the grieving um, husband, then of the possibly not so grieving because probably adulterous husband, and then as the husband who needed to get his wife, um, uh, needed to lose his wife, shall we say, in order to, um, all of this is going on. He's been put through hell. So the idea has been put forward, notably in 1998 by Jared Cade, a writer who wrote a book on this, that it was an elaborate plot on her part, a kind of revenge plot um, that she had cooked up. To frame him or just to, to put frame him, him through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Make him feel, you know, that he had been emotionally uh, distanced to the point of uh, hostility to her. Cruel. And she actually writes a whole book about this uh, under a pseudonym, which we'll come to later, about the deterioration in their relationship and the cruelty. And she has recognized him as her childhood fear. That's to say, the gunman. As a child, she had this recurring nightmare of a person coming in this sort of strangely 18th century costume with a tricorn hat, etc. And he would sit down at the table and she would suddenly realize that this person was actually a disguised form of one of her most close friends, her mother, her sister, her brother, and that this was a direct threat to her. This was her nightmare. And as she tells us in her autobiography, it, it had become clear to her that her husband, Archie, was the incarnation of her childhood nightmare. He was the gunman, the person whom she had trusted, she had loved, she had adored, and who turned out to be her most devious and terrible enemy. Mm. And did she claim that she had amnesia, or what was her response in those when she was in the immediate well, aftermath of her being discovered? Yes. So as soon as Archie Christie, that's the husband now, was interviewed by the press. And he said, my wife has been suffering from total amnesia. She has no memory at all of the days that have gone since. She must have had some kind of um, accident with the car that you know, put her in concussion or something. She has no memory of anything that happened since uh, that night. And she is going to now go to London where we have um, arranged for her to meet with a, um, a specialist, which she did, of course. And this was the story that she'd suffered from amnesia, um, and that was the family story that they kept to, and that remained absolutely intact, one can say, all through the, you know, the publication of her autobiography, in which she does not give any account at all of the disappearance, much mm. to everybody's disappointment. The first published authorized biography by oh, Janet Morgan in, I think, 78, which was, which was um, authorized by the daughter, Rosalind Christy Hicks. All of this, they tried to stick absolutely to the um, uh, amnesia hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But then, as I say, in 1998, 
the uh, Jared Cade said that he had been told by the daughter of Agatha Christie's closest friends that this friend, whose name was Nan Khan, had plotted with Agatha Christie herself to put forward this charade. Mm. However, in nineteen in two thousand and seven, a second authorized biography, this time by Agatha Christie's um, grandson Matthew Pritchard, the heir to her whole uh, estate, as it were, he asks Laura Thompson, who writes a wonderful biography of Agatha Christie, in which she says that the Jared Cade um, case was totally ridiculous, and she returns to this uh, amnesia mm. uh, hypothesis. In between, though, there was me. <laughs> yeah. So what was your theory when you wrote your biography, and what is your recent discovery? Okay. So um, I took, I wrote, I published this book in 1990, and I was heavily into psychoanalysis and the history of mental uh, sort of mind-body things, very much into hysteria. So I had this stuff at my fingertips, as it were. And um, I, you know, one thing important to add, Agatha Christie's papers are not in the public domain. Hmm. They're all under the family. Um, they're all, they were for a very long time, physically actually in her former house. Only two people apart from the family have been given access. That's Janet Morgan and then Laura Thompson. Hmm. When I set out to write my book, I wasn't even thinking of writing a biography. I was going to write a set of critical uh, essays on Agatha Christie as um, uh, a master of uh, detective fiction. But then at the very, almost the, uh, just as I felt that I had a complete manuscript, my editor at the time said, Julian, you have to make this a biography. <laughs> so I did. So I made it into a biography. And this led me to have to do my chapter on this. Yeah. <laughs> so I attend, and I call it Mrs. Neal. Uh, I, I go, my book is structured in such a way we start off with Agatha Miller, we have Mrs. Christie, but then we have Mrs. Neal, because under the name of Mrs. Neal, Teresa Neal, that Agatha Christie checks into the Harrogate Spa, and it's yeah. also the, 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 the name that she uses in an ad that she placed in one of the major newspapers in Britain, asking for friends of Teresa Neal to contact so-and-so at this box. So she's using, in her, she is referencing um, uh, Nancy Neal, she doesn't use the, new, uh, the name Nancy, she uses Teresa. She uses the word, the name Neal, N-E-E-L-E, -E -E, which is clearly a clue, right? Mm. So I'm reading about all this, and I decide to take absolutely seriously the idea that um, was put forward, that she had what was called an hysterical fugue. Yeah. So I read up on hysterical fugues. And actually, there are several kinds of fugues, which are, there's, there's a small branch of um, the history of psychology that deals with fugues. This is when people are knocked on the head, basically, suffer some kind of, they're in extreme distress. They have some financial means. They suffer a traumatic injury of some kind. And for, in some cases in, uh, that have been uh, documented, for years, they lose all knowledge of their self and lead a separate existence. Mm. And then they brought out of it by some other traumatic event. Right. Well, interestingly, well, let me, sorry, let me, sorry to interrupt. Let me say that I found that plausible because, you know, she had the mother who had died. She was grieving heavily. She had this incident with her husband, but also just the things that she was doing do not, I'm not an expert in, 
in either amnesia or uh, hysterical fugue states. But it seems like, you know, the amnesiac we, we picture as someone who's just kind of lost and bewildered and, and maybe wandering around. She was doing, she was checking into the hotel. She had money with her. She was doing all of these things that you, uh, you might not expect someone who was simply suffering from amnesia to do. I found the account to be uh, to make a lot of sense, but it sounds like you have advanced that even further recently. Well, I, I tell, told you that I did not have access to Christie's private papers. Okay, right, right. all I had to do was reading. Okay, I'm an expert on narrative technique. All right, God right. help us. Right, <laughs> that's what I was in uh, 1988, 1989, when I'm writing my book. Right. So I just read her books. That's what I'm good at. I read her books. And Agatha Christie between 19, I think it was, okay, so the disappearance is 1926, right? 1928, she brings out an anonymous book under the name of Mary Westmacott. Mary Westmacott. And she writes in a, no, six books under that pseudonym. Mm -hmm. She stops writing them when an American author, American journalist, um, is able to put together the fact that Mary Westmacott is actually Agatha Christie. Um, Agatha Christie never wrote another one after that because she felt that a key part of her life had been unearthed and she could not bear it. Um, because in this, under this um, pseudonym of Mary Westmacott, She's able to go into things that she does not go into in her autobiography, and she reveals things about herself. That's why she had to do it under an alias, okay? Mm -hmm. So I read the Mary Westmacott books, and I notably read Unfinished Portrait, which is published in 28, I think. It might be in 1933. I'll have to look that up. Anyway, uh, another book called Giant's Bread. And in these two books, in Giant's Bread, Agatha Christie creates a character who suffers a traumatic head injury, is in a state of um, deep distress because he has discovered that while he was a prisoner of war in a um, uh, Russian war camp and during World War I, his wife has remarried, thinking him dead, and occupied his beloved estate as his widow. Mm. And now remarried and happily. So he discovers this. He suffers an accident, and for several years, he lives a parallel life, totally unaware and unable to recognize even the people um, from his previous life. So she creates a character that has this extreme uh, version of hysterical fugue, uh, traumatic hysterical fugue. Um, and then in, un in Unfinished Portrait, uh, she, has, uh, she shows the dissolution of a marriage and a wife who is... Uh, destroyed by the death of her mother and by mm. the dissolution of her uh, of her marriage and tries to commit suicide. And she narrates it in great detail. And I simply said, well, if I put these two books together, Agatha Christie is describing what happened to her yeah. in a fictional form that she believes to be untraceable to herself, but will ultimately be traced. But she puts it out there and she works it out for herself. And she gets rid of Obviously, her presentation of, the, of her first husband, um, who's called Dermot in Unfurnished, is absolutely devastating. I mean, the use of dialogue is diabolical. And we have to remember, of course, that Agatha is writing this. She's the master of um, uh, dramatic dialogue. Um, uh, 
and we don't have any of Archie's uh, point of view on this. So we only have her view. Um, it's extremely dramatic, and I took it um, as an explanation of the whole disappearance. Mm-hmm. That in some ways, what has happened in real life was something like Celia's attempt to, to commit suicide in the novel. However, I'm thinking now, maybe one should say, you know, just what I was talking about at the beginning, that you think you know who's done it, but that <laughs> person couldn't possibly have done it. And then that actually that person did do it. That maybe the Westmacott books are another um, wow. uh, set of false clues. They're a red herring, wrote, yeah. That she actually wrote what could have happened. Um, so I'm no longer sure, but I think it is one of the great mysteries. Oh. Okay. I have a surprise bonus question for you. Oh. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. After some unsettling dreams about being poisoned, you wake up only to find that it's the late 1920s and you are living in a small house in the north of England. There's a knock on the door. It's a woman in distress. She asks if she can come inside for a few moments. Please don't tell anyone I'm here, she says, as the two of you sit across from one another at the kitchen table, drinking tea. I'm in the middle of a strange episode. You see, my name is... You don't need to tell me, you say. I would know Agatha Christie anywhere. She smiles <laughs> She smiles briefly and sips her tea. She tells you that her mother died not long ago, and she's not sure what to do about her failing marriage. She says she's disappeared and she's not sure if she should come clean, return to her previous life, and acknowledge that she's been gone and apologize for leading everyone astray and deal with whatever fallout would ensue, or if she should head to the north of England, go into a hospital and feign amnesia. She would like your opinion. What do you advise her to do? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I would tell her that by her own values she should come clean. Yeah. She lived with that for the the rest of her life, right? 50 years of questions yeah. and uh, insinuations and her having to kind of put up this protective shield. Everyone wanted to ask her more questions about it. It just never, yeah. never left her. And I think that I would, I, I mean, I, I'm taking up your, your good point here. Um, by your question. I think part of it, I mean, part of it, she felt vulnerable. She said she felt like an animal who's, uh, like a fox whose um, who's, uh, warren has been, it's not a warren, but um, his hole has been dug up by the hounds. Uh, she felt that she was hounded mm. um, by the press yeah. uh, and that she would never, ever put herself in that position again. Yeah. But I think as well as that feeling of vulnerability of injustice. I mean, it wasn't her fault that the stupid police had spent all this money, that all these people had gone out to look for something. All the same, she felt responsible and in her view of life. It would make sense to you that she would come clean. That she would feel that she should. And yeah. perhaps at that time, given her state of intense emotional distress, she wouldn't come clean. She did what she did. But when she becomes, as it were, uh, when she has had 
um, the services of an experienced uh, hypnotist when she has recovered her composure. And as she moves on in life, she has to come to terms with her own guilt as well as the stupidity of other people and the uh, cruelty of Archie and all those things. Uh, but she doesn't excuse herself. I don't think she was a woman who excused herself easily. Mm. Right. Well, it just seems so fitting that the woman who satisfied so many millions, I guess billions of readers with having the satisfying explanation and conclusion to a mystery has left us with one that is unsatisfying for being unresolved. We have no Hercule Poirot. Each biographer seeks to be him. But none of us, I think, has really succeeded because the mis- the, ma- the mistress of mysteries did give us sewed clues, but did not give us the real answer. Uh, yes, she's uh, too good for us. <laughs> she is. Okay, let's stop there. Jillian Gill, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Uh, it's been my pleasure. we go. My thanks to Jillian Gill for joining me today. Agatha Christie. Doesn't that make you want to run out and pick up a copy? They are so much fun. Doesn't it make you want to read Ms. Gill's biography of Ms. Christie? That's fun, too. It'd be nice to get an updated version of it. Come on, publishing gods. Make it happen. We know a lot more now than we did then, and Jillian Gill is the perfect person to bring us the new news to tackle the mysteries, to gather us all in a room and announce that the puzzle has been solved. I'm shivering a little just thinking about it. I did it! I confess! I was the one who drove dear Agatha mad. You see? She was passionately in love with me. I was a dashing aviator back then, but I was unhappily married to a woman who was incapacitated by a horrendous disease. So I begged Dear Agatha, not to breathe a word of it to anyone. We had two glorious weeks together, traveling through Britain, until the press hounded us. Those dogs made us give it all up. I came up with the plan. Agatha, my darling, you must say that you had amnesia, and you must take that secret to your grave. So, no, publishing world, do not let Jillian Gill read those private papers. She will see the letters from me, which Agatha and I wrote in code, of course. She will work out the code, and I will go down in history as a selfish rogue, an unlovable cad, the rake who raked poor Agatha, the saintly Agatha over the coals, the raking rake. That's me, Jack Wilson, the rakish Jack Wilson, raking his way through life, stepping on a few too, but that's neither here nor there. That's just a little private feud between my foot and my nose. It's nobody's business but theirs. And if my foot should die in mysterious circumstances, and they gather my nose, my hand, my eyebrow, and my knee in a room, well, we'll know who the prime suspect is, won't we? And if the story is any good, we will all guess, and we will all guess wrong. Speaking of wrong, I'm Jack Wilson. Wait, wait, what kind of a segue is that? Who writes this stuff? I guess I should write it myself next time. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.